Hey, you're listening to a brand new episode of Funny and Handsome Guys, brought to you by Centers of Attention Productions. Leave us some feedback at fhgpodcast at gmail.com, or hit us up on Twitter at Twitter handle at fhgpodcast. Or leave us a voicemail at 847-893-0344 and enjoy being humiliated in front of our tens of listeners. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Funny and Handsome Guys. Uh, I am Reggie, here as always. I'm Kevin. I'm Chris. It, yeah, it's it's us. Um, we're going to jump right into things right away. We're going to talk about our album of the week, which is uh, the new album from Lupe Fiasco. It's called, it's, it has like one of the longest names ever, Food and Liquor 2, The Great American Rap Album Part 1. Album of the week. It's a, it's the first part of a sequel of another album, which is uh, which is supposed to be his last, apparently too. He always threatens this. Every <laughs> new one is going to be his last one. We'll see, though. We'll see. Um, so let's uh, let's take a listen to one of the tracks. Here is put him up. Kevin, why don't you start us on this one? Okay. Um, well, Lupe's always been um, his gift has really been lyrics. Like he's he's a clever lyricist, and sometimes that leads him down uh, a path that isn't necessarily um, good. Like his last album, Lasers, you know, not not the most well received album um, or, or out there. Um, so he's decided he's, he, wa- he wants to come back a little bit, um, go back to his roots. You know, this is uh, a sequel to his, I believe it's his first album. Yeah, it's his major label debut. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right there you, you can tell that he's, he's like trying to do some course correction on where he feels his his uh, uh, career has been going. And as you just said, you know, this may be his last one. Who knows if it is or not. Like, people 
in in uh, performance professions always say that they're going to you know this is going to be the last thing and then they come back and it's it's their comeback album or whatever so maybe he's setting us up for the comeback album maybe he's serious who knows um what i know is here he he's using his cleverness um and usually it's pretty good um sometimes it gets a little preachy uh and really like i mean i think i think the very first track not even like the first uh uh true sing uh song on it it's it's a uh spoken word uh uh hip-hop thing aisha says yeah aisha says uh and that that right there like sort of tells you that this is sort of the sort of album where he's going to be like really taking those lyrics and and placing them like in the forefront um he 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 wants to be clever he wants to like show you like and and bring rap back to that sort of musical spoken word um you know poetry and and it works usually sometimes he's he's a bit too clever for his own good um sometimes it works in a cockeyed way uh you know one of the Songs on it, uh, Bitch Bad is sort of a rundown of, of misogyny, um, you know, bitch is bad, woman's better, uh, lady's best, or something like that, um, and, and it's, it's good, but it seems a little bit on the nose, a little bit, like, He's trying to uh, uh, preach to us, but we don't entirely buy what he's pe- preaching. I mean, I I, I don't think it's. I, I think "bitch bad" is a. It, it's definitely a message. I don't. I don't think it's it's too preachy in the sense that I, I think it's not preachy enough. I think a lot of, you know, Lupe is the kind of rapper rapper that that when you hear him use words like nigga and bitch, like usually he's doing that to oh. to say something to prove a point not totally. you know they aren't just interchangeable words like a lot of rappers um, agreed I, I i'm gonna say that like i i think that it's really refreshing that he wants to tackle this and it's it's not it's not a bad album it's not a bad song it's not a bad uh single but um and and and, and this is this is trying to ask be, be like hey this is a great uh great song great message but maybe you could have done it this way sort of critique i mean i it's it's not a real valid critique it's it's a uh, you know admittedly it's it's the sort of thing where it's like it, it, yes you can call a woman lady but i think that's going a little bit too much the opposite direction, but that's just one example. Like it's that it's really um, not indicative really of the entire album of this sort of like uh, um, overcompensation, but he is at times like really just trying to like tell us what he thinks. And that's not a bad thing. It's not, it it, it can sometimes uh, irk you the wrong way though. If you're, if you don't necessarily agree with them. I think I, I hear what you're saying. I think that it's actually a bad single, just because um, 
when you put a single out there, you want like the catchiest, probably like dumbest thing you have on your album just to kind of hook people. And in a sense, Bitch Bad is a really smart, heavy song, you know? So I don't think a lot of people, like I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, like, oh yeah, we, we get it, man. Da, da, da. You know? And, um, you're right. I, I, I agree with you, Kevin, in the sense that on this album, he's not always, um, you know, super heavy, super preachy, but like, especially in this song, like this song is probably the most condensed Lupe preachiness, um, I've heard in a, in a long time, actually. And it's all in that one. I mean, it's not that I don't agree with it because I absolutely do. I, I think it's awesome that he made a song like that, but, um, I think in general, his, his political, um, his, uh, his political flavor is definitely, he stepped it up a notch and he, he's definitely not shy about it at all. Like, uh, if I think about the first food and liquor, there's a lot more, you know, just good vibe kind of songs. And this one is definitely way more like political, like we need to do this. Like how, how, how can you do this? How can you do that? And I, I believe that a lot of stuff he's saying needs to be said, but this this album is definitely less of a, hey, let's put this on and dance with our friends, and this one is more like, think about the world. Think about the world. Yeah, and that's totally what I mean by, this is lyrics first uh, sort of music. It's it's an album where he wants you to, to listen to what he has to say, and not um, it's, it's not the sort of album that, like you said, you're going to put on to dance to. It's not going to be uh, sampled in, in clubs. It's not going to be something that is going to be played on Kiss FM. Um, to be perfectly frank, it's it's not that sort of like populist sort of album, and yet it is. Like he's speaking to a very. Um, I mean, he, he's speaking to the people. He 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 wants to be uh, a rapper, a performer of the people. And I respect that. I, I do. Um, you know, I would say, like, overall, this, this album is uh, is is good. Um, maybe not great, but solid. You're kind of quiet back there, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my, my sort of thoughts on the whole thing are that, you know, Lupe is an intelligent, intelligent guy. Uh, far more intelligent than a lot of other people making you know, hip hop these days. And while he does get preachy and while he does get very, you know, he will tell you exactly what he thinks. I find that quality admirable because he's taking stands on things and taking positions on things that most people probably wouldn't admit to or back up, but he's sort of sticking to his guns and, you know, he, he said things like, oh, you know, I don't vote and I don't particularly care for President Obama. And that that especially is something that's that's a little um, bold. It, yeah, it, it's a bold, bold statement to make in a bold position to, to take. But he's holding steadfast to things like that. And, you know, he's basically saying, listen, I understand that people aren't going to agree with me all the time. And I understand that some of my positions on things can be controversial or can be, you know, viewed as not necessarily uh, appropriate. But he also says that, you know, 
that's just the way that he is and people can take it or leave it. So, you know, in, in that sense, given that he is, you know, very preachy, he, he's kind of increased that a little bit uh, through his records, uh, as, as you sort of mentioned, Reggie. And I think that while it doesn't necessarily always work for him, I admire the guts that it takes to do that. Um, on, on that same sort of uh, vibe... You know, there, there's a lot about violence, inner city violence on this record that I think is important in the sense of, you know, he's, he's trying to raise awareness that there's this, you know, culture out there, m killings being increased in cities and things like that. Uh, in particular, he got into a fight with Chief Keefe, uh, another Chicago guy who's really rising right now, but he's, Chief Keefe is... He's very much sort of a gun culture type person in that, you know, he goes around waving guns. Uh, there was a, a fellow rapper, fellow Chicago rapper that was killed uh, not too long ago that was sort of a rival of Chief Keefe's. And Chief Keefe sort of went out uh, and celebrated his death. And that was something that was viewed by Lupe Fiasco and, and many others to be inappropriate. Um, and so he's sort of, Lupe's sort of gone on the attack against Chief Keefe and that sort of culture of increased violence um, and saying, you know, that's not the way that we need to be doing things. We need to change our culture in that sense. It's the same way we've been, we've been doing it for so long and it's only led to more and more people getting killed. And, you know, Chief Keefe basically just hit back at him and started, you know, insulting him with every, you know, every insult that he could. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, this record is about trying to change the culture. And that's another aspect that I find admirable. Now, you put it all together, it's very heavy-handed, very preachy, very, you know, moral compass uh moralizing yeah trying to teach you a lesson trying to you know spew intelligence at you and facts and figures and whatever else and that's not necessarily the best uh way to go about it i don't think um while i appreciate the intelligence while i appreciate the somebody's making music about these issues um it doesn't always work. It's not always effective. And I think that kind of shows up on this record a bit. Uh, it's not as good as it should or could be. Um, and so if you're going to, you know, I, I think that if it had gone a little bit smoother, maybe, maybe if it went down a little bit more smoothly or was a little less heavy handed, it would be a lot easier to listen to and a lot better overall. I, I hear what you're saying. I think, um, the thing that really, um, it, I, I kind of feel like after the cool, um, he stopped being, he knew he was different. He, he knew he was different from the beginning, but I feel like after the cool, he was like, yes, I'm different. This is what sets me apart. You know, he, um, he didn't so much, um, that's when he started to get a little more preachy. 
and I, I kind of feel like I, I appreciate it. It seems like generally what we're saying is that <laughs> if he was being less preachy and, you know, like if I think about some of the songs from food and liquor, like, um, daydreaming, um, there's definitely, definitely a message in that one, but it's, it's a little more veiled. And, um, like I said, that one's more of just like a, like a head nodding, like just a good hip hop song in general. And I think, um, there's only a few songs on, um, Food and Liquor 2 that I believe, um, have that kind of like good hip hop song quality. The rest of them are very much just message, 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 message. And, um, I appreciate that about him. But but I hear what you're saying, and I actually do agree that that doesn't necessarily make for the best album here. Okay, so that's uh, Lupe Fiasco, Food and Liquor, Part Two, the Great American Rap Album, Part One. Or was it? Would you call it Food and Liquor Two, the Great American Rap Album, Part One? Like, not so many parts. I I would call it Food and Liquor Two, Electric Boogaloo. But I just like adding electric boogaloo to the ends of anything that has a two in front of it. Uh, I hear what you're saying, and I agree. There should be more electric boogaloo uh, sequels out there. We haven't gotten, like, a really great, like, inane sequel name in a while, have we? Uh, yeah, not really. You You make a good point. I mean, I want, like... Something like, I don't know. Like When a Stranger Calls 2, When a Stranger Calls Back? Yes. Or uh, <laughs> Tree of Life 2, Last Resort or something like that. I don't know. Something something ridiculous, you know. Tree something... of Life 2, Breaking Down the Roots. There you go. Uh, Trouble with the Curve 2, Trouble Harder. Anyway, so... Yeah, I, I just don't understand why he couldn't have called it Food and Liquor Volume 2 and just left it at that. <laughs> I think, um, just because I think he's trying to use the Great American Rap album, like, trying to use that to evoke um, anything. It's, I mean, that's a that's a pretty provocative title, a Great American Rap album. Like, who's it's, uh, he's, he's really trying for something, you know? It's a bold statement. Exactly. exactly. It's like somebody titling their album the best album you will ever hear. I would listen to that just to see if they were telling the truth. Just to be able to say, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, also something that's that's kind of new, um, just in theaters as of this past Friday. Well, by the time this gets released uh, two Fridays ago, uh, is a uh, movie written and directed by Ryan Johnson, B. Looper. Um, it's uh, just to uh, paraphrase the plot, um, it's basically about a future in which um, the mob uses time travel to uh, dispose of um, unwanted persons. <laughs> so to speak. Um, so basically what they do is they put hits on people and the way they get rid of them is they send them back in time. Um, so they send them back about 30 years where they're executed by um, assassins called loopers. 
and they have a very, uh, very strict, very tight process in which they do this. And um, the uh, the position of Looper, you actually stop looping, so to speak, um, when you get a target, you kill it, bam, and then it turns out that it's it's you from the future. So it's basically like the mob telling you, "Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for all your hard work. <laughs> You've got thirty years to live." It's very interesting. It's I are we we're we're gonna go spoiler free, right? In our discussion, for the most part, I would think, but but I think we can keep get get into some of the plot without spoiling things. Okay, um, it's a very interesting take on on time travel. Um, yeah, anything you guys want to uh, dive into about it right away? Kevin? First of all, like how crazy is the concept? It's it's a fascinating concept, I think, because it takes something, you know, I, I've never heard of a plot quite like it before, which is interesting because you know it it it's always makes for a unique when when you have a unique concept, um, and. You know, it's Back people... to the Future meets Taken. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Brad, you one of the things that, that you didn't quite mention in, in your plot summary there was that, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays this guy, Joe, and, you know, he's a looper. And all of a sudden his future self gets beamed back to him and he does not kill his future self. His future self gets away. And so the whole, you know, the main plot of the movie is sort of older version of him played by Bruce Willis, uh, and the younger version played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt trying to, you know, kill or be killed in a sense. Uh, and there's much more to it as well. Uh, many more complications and that I think helps the movie quite a bit. It makes it intelligent science fiction it brings so many twists and turns in there that it can be difficult to follow at times um but at the same time it's thrilling and it's action-packed and if you once you get a grasp on the story and, and what exactly is happening when and where i think that it becomes that much more you know revelatory or you know you you get a better feel for it and are able to enjoy it that much more. I think. I uh, I really liked Ryan Johnson's last movie, uh, The Brothers Bloom. It's not a great movie, but it's it's fun. It's got it, it shows a real knack for dialogue, um, and uh, I mean all the actors are great. I I much more prefer his first film, Brick, which is really astounding. Um, yes, yes. And that's that's uh his first pairing with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um and it actually sells the concept that that it comes up with. It sounds pretentious as hell. Um 
but it, it works. It's it's about Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a high school kid, but he's basically Sam Spade, um, you know, and 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 they it's it's very hard boiled uh, noir set in high school, and it's it's got some quirkiness to it. Um, and it's just a really unique movie. And I am I was really looking forward to the team-up that the two of them um, would have again with this movie. Um, and not only that, but I was really looking forward to uh, Ryan Johnson uh, semi-teaming up with Shane Carruth, who did the other time travel movie, Primer, um, which was another really impressive little indie uh, made a few years back. Um for about seven grand and it is the most sci-fi like hard sci-fi uh practical film about uh, uh time travel that i've ever seen um it was like i said filmed for about seven grand and the guy f- shot 90 minutes or maybe like 92 minutes and the movie's like 89 minutes long which, if you've ever done any sort of, like, film work, you know that that's just incredible. He didn't waste a minute of, of his filming. Um, and he, he – so so Ryan Johnson brought Shane Cruth on here um, to sort of work out the time travel kinks here. But that doesn't really show through so much in this. I mean, you get, you get some of that time travel um, – what you may call it, uh, uh, business, but you never really delve into the technical side of things. Like, um, we know that it's the future, and then even in the further future, time travel is existent. But for some reason, uh, the only people who have it are the mob and, and organized crime, and everybody else, uh, it's, it's illegal. Um, now, how the, the mob has gotten its hands on uh, time travel, who knows? That's not the point. Um, they tortured Doc Brown. Yes, they tortured Doc Brown. Uh, <laughs> but it, that's not really the point. I think that th- the time travel in the case of this film really is a bit of a, a, a MacGuffin. Um I mean, it's what you think you're you're worried about or what you're interested in, um, but it's not really because you're really interested in seeing how these two actors, who, these two characters played by Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, how they're going to come out of this because Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't let his his older self go. He escapes, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is determined to hunt down himself. Um, and he's employed by, uh, a great little crime boss, um, played by, uh, 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 Jeff Daniels, um, in a really fantastic sort of extended cameo. It's, it's a nice reteaming of the two of them. They were in The Lookout a few years ago and, uh, another really great underrated film, I think, um. But here you, you've got, like, the, the question being, what would you do if you met yourself and you were faced with, like, yourself wanting to kill you? Uh, everything about you repulses the other part of you. Um, and now you're faced with this point of, like, one of these guys needs to survive and one of them doesn't. But if one of these guys dies and the other one doesn't, then the other one dies 
no matter what. And you just, you're really interested to see how the time narrative, uh, you know, sort of meshes together and, and where it's going. There's some other things that are thrown in here. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's, let's just say that things are introduced earlier in the film that come into play later in the film. Um, doesn't always work in my opinion, but it doesn't really matter uh, because this is a smart film that um, it, it throws out maybe a, a few too many MacGuffins, but is interesting, it's fascinating, it's thrilling like the whole way through. Um, I haven't seen a, a sci-fi film this smart or, or uh, uh, thrilling since Moon a few years back. Reggie, your thoughts? Um, I, well, from what I've, from what I've heard, I heard that Ryan Johnson, um, he wanted everyone to be less concerned with uh, the time travel aspect of it and more concerned with the narrative. And on that level, I think as a narrative, it was a great story. Um, but I, I'm a big like time travel nerd and I know time travel isn't real and arguing the logistics of it is, is kind of stupid, (laughs) but there are a lot of things that I had problems with as far as like what I kind of feel like there needs to be, um, like kind of like a compass timeline kind of, uh, like if this happens, if, if a happens, you know, here, then B is going to happen 30 years from now. Um, you know, you can play with the idea of, of that changing. Um, but I kind of feel like in Looper that was played with entirely too much. Um, almost to the point where I, I don't want to say I didn't care at the end, but I was just like, Oh, well this is crazy and messed up. And I, you know, I just didn't know which way was up at that point. Um, so that, that's, that's the problem that I had with it. But I mean, besides that, it was a really smart, really well put together movie. <laughs> Chris, what did you think? You know, I, I I sort of went off a little bit on it, uh, you know, a few minutes ago by sort of saying that you know it's it's a complicated film, but the more you understand it, I think the better it is. Yes, there are the time travel aspects of it. Especially, you know, there's the whole concept of, oh, well, if time travel actually gets invented, then time travel will have always existed uh, rather than, you know, just existing from the moment it gets invented. Because anybody, you know, that knows how to make a time machine in the future obviously knows how to make a time machine in the past or, or would be able to go back to the past and make a time machine in the past. Not only that, but then we would also have people in our current present that would be showing up from the past to tell us of various different things and events or whatever else. So there's the whole paradox of that. You're required to suspend your belief in, you know, in some aspects of it, especially, you know, with some of the, crazy things that happen in this film but i think it's worthwhile just for the for the sake of the story and just let yourself believe what they're telling you 
uh, in the movie. And I think the performances are great. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt always does an excellent job. I don't think I've ever seen him in a bad role, even though, I don't know. I, I Cobra Commander. Like, huh, what? When, uh, Cobra, Cobra Commander and G.I. Joe? Oh, well, there's that. <laughs> also, I, I... Come on, I, you, would, you, would, you would take the role of Cobra Commander if it was offered you. I, you're right. Right. Yeah, but I would demand that my face would never be shown. <laughs> and, and I wasn't particularly proud of his work in Havoc either, I guess. But no, it's... I liked him in Havoc. I thought, I thought really? he did a good job. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's an obvious reason I wanted to see that movie. But yeah, I feel yeah. like, I feel like, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt didn't do a bad job in it by any means. I don't know. I I thought that wasn't quite the role he should have been taking, but that that's just me. Um, and, and you know Bruce Willis, he's sort of pretty hit or miss sometimes. Um, and either you guys see the cold light of day when it came out a couple weeks ago and immediately disappeared from theaters. Nope, I I heard about it, but obviously not something that was on too many people's uh, radars. There. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Bruce Willis hasn't necessarily had some great films in the last few years. Uh, But this is certainly one of the best things he's been involved with in a while, I think. Emily Blunt, who's also in the film, does great work herself. She's pretty great in most everything as well. Um, And as you mentioned, Kevin, Jeff Daniels. Top-notch work. And that Uh, five-year-old kid? Like, excellent. Yeah, so creepy. (laughs) <laughs> creepy he's, in a good way I, yeah. I should say like he's he's not creepy where you're like he's creepy where you're you're not like oh this is the demon child he's creepy where it's like you're never quite sure where he's coming from and that's that's the sort of complexity that you don't see in, in too many child actors yes I agree uh, and you know Ryan Johnson is as you already mentioned, Kevin, a very good director. Uh, he hasn't directed nearly enough, I don't think. Um, no. And, and and I'm going to throw this out there. Neither is Shane Cruth. I mean, I loved Primer, and this guy needs to get another film. He, I, I'm, I'm really glad that his buddy, Ryan Johnson, gave him some work here uh, so the guy can eat. But he needs to get back to, to making making movies. Yes. So, you know, overall, I think this is an excellent science fiction film. One one of probably my top five science fiction films in the last ten years. Uh, so it, it's quite good. If you haven't seen it, I would personally give a big fat recommendation that you do so. Top five, top five, top five. Oh yeah. So to uh, to kind of go along with our discussion of of Looper and time travel and whatnot, our uh, our list for this week is uh, top five time travel movies. Um, I know I've kind of I don't want to say I've cheated, but I mean I've. Uh, I, I don't, Kevin. You seem to cheat every week. You seem to. I haven't cheated in a while. I I, <laughs> I did bring that up to you guys uh, some time back, 
And I was like, how do you guys feel about it? And you're like, I think it's bullshit. And I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm going to, I, I did cheat a little bit on this one, but not too much. See, it's, it's like <laughs> I used a time machine to know. It's hard because to, to, to be like, let's say, what are your top five time travel films? That's so broad. And I think that's almost, uh, you know, a problem with a list like this. Like I, I would love to see like a top five, um, time travel films, uh, that aren't relying on technology or top five time travel films that are comedies or top five. Like it's such a huge like subject that, that gets so many people, uh, their creative juices going that we've got so many movies out there about it. So many, books and and uh mediums out there addressing time travel that it's it's hard to be like what's your top 5 I I'm I'm aware of this and this is why I have myself cheated a little bit because it's right. a lot it's very um it's a lot to try and encompass with just five picks Yep I think we'll this will probably be if if we do this for a while uh you know this this whole show thing um I, I, I imagine this will be something that we could probably come back to in the future. Um, just because it's something that I think any one of us would, would as as our movie, you know, viewing education goes, will probably uh, have some new ones that we might want to throw up there. But. Well, Kevin, since uh, since you're talking right now, well, All since right. you were talking two seconds ago, uh, what's your number five pick? All right, so my number five, um, some people like it, some people hate it. I like it a lot. It's Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. This movie was filmed uh, in the 90s. I can't place the exact, uh, I want to say it's like 95 or something like that. That sounds about right. Um, but it's it's basically um, it's ninety three. Excuse me, ninety three. Um, it's basically Bill Murray plays a weatherman who is constantly assigned to go to the annual Groundhog Day in Puxwani, uh Pittsburgh, or, or Puxwani, Philadelphia, rather. Um, and uh, when he gets there, he gets stuck in a time loop. Um, and he does the same day uh, again and again and again and again. But he always comes back to, like, um, the, the the same sort of morning every morning. No matter if he dies, he dies and he wakes up in his bed at the beginning of the day just like he has 20 times before. Um, it's a really interesting concept. It's done really great here. Uh, directed by Harold Ramis. Um, starring Andy McDowell, who... Hasn't been seen in years, but now she's on uh, some TV show. Um, I don't know. Isn't she on, like, Jane by Design? Yeah, that's it. Uh, but she um, she plays the love interest that can't stand him to begin with, but every day he learns more and more about her and what to do and learns to be a better guy. Um, interestingly enough, this is the exact same concept that's used in an upcoming Tom Cruise move movie called all you need is kill um it's basically about a it's a adaptation of a japanese uh novel 
that is about a invasion of Earth that um, the main character played by Tom Cruise in the movie. Um, he's never seen battle before, but this invasion of these aliens um, is the first time he goes out and he k- gets killed really quickly, but he comes into contact with one of the aliens and it causes some sort of time loop. And so every day he wakes up and he goes out and fights and then he dies and he wakes back up right where he was and keeps going through it. But he keeps learning until he becomes like some sort of super soldier. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that movie, even though it stars Tom Cruise. Um, but Groundhog Day did it first and did it pretty great. So, All right. Chris, what about you? What's your number five? All right. Uh, first, I will say, though, Kevin, Groundhog Day, good choice. I considered it for my list, but did not put it on there. Instead, my number five pick is also a kind of a comedy, uh, as Groundhog Day is. My number five is Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. And it's kind of a, an interesting pick, I think, because I feel like the the second Austin Powers, which is what this is, uh, was better than the first one. Um, and certainly better than the third one, uh, <laughs> which felt old and tired. But Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, I think just had the right combination of elements to make it work between, you know, the introduction of the the fat bastard character to the way that, uh, you know, the the jumping back to the 60s. And I just, I I have a soft spot for that film uh, in the Austin Powers ovure, if you will. And uh, certainly hope that if Mike Myers eventually does make a fourth Austin Powers, that it's more in line with that than it is with any of the other films, even though the first one was pretty good, too. I like that one a lot, too. I have, uh, I remember I saw it twice the weekend it came out. Like, it was just crazy. Like, it was probably one of the funniest things I had seen in a while at that point. Some respects a classic. Agreed. Definitely. What's your number five, Reggie? Uh, My number five would be uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, I remember seeing it, uh, seeing it in the movie theater when it came out. And, um, you know, when I was that young, I I really, I I just kind of identified with Bill and Ted characters, I guess. Um, And then I, I actually sat down and watched it again recently. And I thought it was fantastic. Like, all the jokes. Like, the just the, the scene where, like, Genghis Khan and Joan of Arc and everybody are, are in the mall. Like, I think that, just watching that now, just kind of makes me giggle. Like, it's so, it's so silly, but, like, awesome silly. And, um, just for that reason alone. Um, like, Napoleon with the, <laughs> eating the ice cream. <laughs> like, if you haven't seen the movie, like, you probably like yeah, whatever, but it's it's like this giant. It, I guess it'd be like equivalent to like the Vermonster from Ben and Jerry's. Like like of course Napoleon has to conquer this, and he, he of course he's not going to back down from it. 
and and just like a complete glutton, he just totally goes in after it. And you know, when I was however old I was when the movie was out, of course I didn't get that joke. But now, like it's it's really funny. And then like Freud, like all the jokes of Freud, like I really just appreciate that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, Bill and Ted is my number five pick. That's a great choice. Um, I'm, I think it holds up spectacularly well. Um, and, uh, there, there's been talk about, uh, a sequel and Bill and Ted's bogus journey was one of the rare sequels that is almost just as good as the original. Um, you know, and, and, and if you, if you're like thinking, what the hell are you on? Go back and watch it. It's it's great. They're they're funny movies, and uh, I really hope that they get around to doing a a third Bill and Ted's movie because it just sounds so ridiculous that it's got to work. I agree. Um, so my number four is Primer. I've mentioned it already. It's a uh, Shane Carruth's uh, super low budget indie. Um, and you might ask yourself, how does a guy with only $7,000 make an, a sci-fi movie about time travel? Well, this is how he does it. He, he, he does it as straightforward and matter-of-fact as it possibly could be. Um, it's got a plot that, that needs to have like outlines and Venn diagrams and uh, uh, other forms of diagrams just to make heads or tails of the whole thing. But... It's one of the more realistic, logical uh, time travel films out there, and it's a masterpiece of film construction. Um, you know, there's there's much to be said about Shane Cruth being a former mathematician because you see it in his work here, and it's it's excellent. So, Primer is my number four. Awesome. What about you, Chris? What's your number four? Uh, my number four is Twelve Monkeys. Uh, it's a film by Terry Gilliam, uh, who directed it. Uh, it stars Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe. It also has a good supporting role from Brad Pitt. Um, and it was actually one of Brad Pitt's earliest films, which I sort of went back. I, I had a period of time where I was obsessed with Brad Pitt, not in a sexual way, mind you, uh, in a purely just, I felt like he was a great actor in spite of his looks and went back and watched all of his earlier films. And 12 monkeys was one that I didn't see early on in like in my film watching. I, I didn't get around to it until about mm, 2000. Yeah. Somewhere around there. So about five years after it came out, uh, but the the basic plot of the film is that the in the future, the year 2035 to be exact, only 1% of the world's population is left surviving after a terrible disease and virus had gotten out back in 1996 uh, that, that started killing people off and more and more people died. So they send Bruce Willis back in time. Uh, another one where Bruce Willis is involved in time travel. Uh, and he goes back in time and to try and stop this virus from getting out and from from killing the world's population. And he instead gets sent back a little too far and 
gets locked up in a mental institution. There's a whole bunch of other plot to it, but it is there. There's a great, great twist at the end that I feel makes it even much more worthwhile of a film. And Terry Gilliam is a great director. So if you haven't seen 12 monkeys, by all means, please do. Uh, it's a classic, I think for sure. Um, another great movie here. Uh, it's it's just got a little bit of uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, trademark absurdity um, and surrealism. I mean, it's it's a fantastic performance by Brad Pitt. Um, yeah, I, I heartily enjoy uh, endorse this choice, Chris. Best work, I, science fiction work, I think, since Brazil. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, Brazil was a hard one for me to get into, so. I uh, I think I actually like uh, Twelve Monkeys more. I yeah I totally understand why. Reggie, what's your number four? Uh, my number four would be uh, the Butterfly Effect. Um, yeah, not so much because of Ashton Kutcher, uh, but I I really um, just like the concept of of uh, using like. Uh, I think in the movie it was uh, it was like old home movies, and then apparently like when his dad did it, who also had the same kind of ability, it was like uh, pictures. And he um, also uses his journals. Yeah, yeah, but uh, like just to um, travel travel back and and change the outcome of your future um, through that kind of stuff, and um, you, I, I think it's like the ultimate time travel cautionary tale um just because you go back to change one thing and then you go back (laughs) back to the future so to speak and um it turns out that you've changed so much more and it's all about it's almost like a pinball machine of of course correction uh, just to just to try and get the outcome that you're looking for and um it's I, I just I really like that kind of because um, one thing we didn't really talk about well I know well Chris you brought it up the fact that like time travel if if it's going to exist it will have always existed and I kind of feel like they did touch on that with Looper um, because I think the mob knows that and abuses it I kind of feel like if they were to do um, like, like if time travel was real, it'd be very much regulated. If you go back, like you can't, you know, you can't make any differences. Like you almost have to be invisible. Like you can only almost like be like a tourist. You can't participate in these things. Like you, you, you need to, um, well, I guess I not even leave footprints in a sense because, you know, somebody might find that and blah, blah, blah. And I believe butterfly effect effect totally demonstrates that just because you, you, you change this and then bam, you go back in the future and oh, I didn't realize that would be affected. Well, let's go back to change that, go to the future again. Oh man, I, I, you know, screw this up worse. So, um, simply because it shows, um, how much of a clusterfuck time travel would be (laughs) if it were possible. Uh, my number four pick is butterfly effect. Um, Kevin, what what's your number three? 
my number three is it, it, it's a, a a series, but I, I I'm going to go with the first movie in it. Um, definitely the Terminator. Uh, this is early James Cameron. Um, here his his lack of uh, script, you know, ability doesn't necessarily matter. But his plotting here has has never been better. I mean the the whole thing um, between this one and the second one, it, it all works out so perfectly um, that it's. I mean, I mean, it's it just it's beautiful, really. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great example of that sort of uh, uh, dealing with the paradoxes of time travel um, to a, a limited extent. Um, The the first one is I think better because it's just like this unrelenting film. I mean, it's it's just one of the most terrifying action films uh, you could see. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not given too much to say, so but he he does it very well. He's completely believable um, as an unrelenting killing machine, and uh, yeah, I mean everything works for its favor here. It's it's great. Um, it's sort of gone off the rails as it's gone on, but uh, the first one and, and the second one definitely hold up. Definitely. Totally agree on that one. Um, Chris, what's your number three pick? Uh, my number three pick is Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, many people will tell you that the original Back to the Future is the best of the series. However, uh, as with Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, I feel the second one actually eclipses the first. Um, and let me try and explain why. Um, not only does this one go both to the future and introduce things like self-lacing shoes and hoverboards... But it also goes back to the past and goes through portions of the first film from a completely different perspective, which I think is brilliant in in many ways. Uh, it also exposes the idea of the butterfly effect uh, as the film you mentioned, uh, Reggie, um, in how sometimes if you change you know, the past, then it will change what happens in the future. And so, you know, dealing with some of those consequences and, you know, having Marty and Doc go both up to 2015 and then back to 1955 and then back to 1985, all those jumps, I think, uh, along with some of the crazy things that happen in that film, uh, make it better than the first. Uh, not much better, mind you. Uh, only a little bit better. Now I'm shamefully uh, upset at the lack of Crispin Glover in the sequel. But, uh, that said, Back to the Future Part 2, I think, is the best of the Back to the Future series in my number three. That's a great one. It, it weaves in nicely... Uh with the first film in a way that it really highlights the, the future time travel, uh, you know, 
design of, of a time travel film. It's it's a good one. Totally agreed. Reggie, what's your number three? My my number three pick is um, Star Trek First Contact. Um, this is probably my favorite Star Trek movie, period. And it also happens to uh, also happens to include time travel. And the reason I put it on my list simply is because there's a scene where um, uh, Captain Picard, played by Patrick Stewart, is trying to explain something to Alfre Woodard's character, and she simply doesn't want to hear it. So as he's talking, she gives him like the hand, like like, and walks away. And to have that happen in the Star Trek universe made me laugh out loud. That's a great movie. I I think it's uh, probably the best of the next generation uh, Star Trek films. Um, and it was a shame that none of the uh, follow-ups really were able to match it. But great because movie. it was too awesome. <laughs> exactly. All right, so my number two, uh, we just touched on it, um, and and here's my cheat. Uh, it's it's hard for me to say that one movie is better than the other, and this includes the third one, Back to the Future trilogy. Um, Bam. Like I I I feel like it's one of the most cohesive film trilogies that's ever been uh, created. And that's saying very much considering they, they lost several members of the cast for the sequel. Um, and, and then the, the, the third one um, throws a, throws a whole wrench into it by throwing, going it back to uh, the wild West. I mean, it's, it's pure pop joy. I mean, it's it's a throwback to some of the uh, uh, serials that used to, you know, run in, in theaters way, way long ago in the, the 30s and 40s. Um, it's just a modern serial that's, that's pure fun. And it has had such an impact on modern blockbuster filmmaking. Um you you can't really understate how much of that it it has. You know, I I get the feeling that somewhere down the line they're either going to want to remake Back to the Future or do do like a fourth film. Yeah, and, I've, I've heard that. And you know, I my only hope is that if they do do that, that they that Michael J. Fox is involved in some capacity. Uh, I think it would, it wouldn't necessarily make it a better film, whatever they choose to do, uh, with it. But I do think that it would be a little more entertaining. I'd be much more likely to see it if I knew, even if he was only in it for five minutes. Agreed. Well, Telltale, uh, Telltale Games did, um, a Back to the Future game, which is kind of like an alternate, it's a, it's kind of like an, an offshoot. Of, of what could have happened and it starts right from um right from back to the future the original one it's it's uh the initial scene in the um in the parking lot of of lone pine mall or twin pines mall um where if they they do the initial test for the delorean and it doesn't come back and so later uh 
that means that Doc Brown just kind of disappears, and, and while Marty's dad is, like, settling up his estate, um, all of a sudden, bam, the DeLorean comes back, and there's a note inside, it's like, Marty, I'm in trouble, come get me. And it's actually, um, it's, it's really cool, um, uh, Christopher Lloyd is the voice of Doc in it, and Marty, uh, not Marty, <laughs> Michael J. Fox is, um, he's involved, he does a voice somewhere in the game, I haven't got to that point yet. But I'm really, I've been enjoying what I've played so far. So I guess, I guess it's kind of like a sequel in a sense. But more of like, I don't know if you guys remember the Back to the Future cartoon. I was a huge oh, fan do. of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, so, it's, It does not hold up. It's it's pretty terrible. I'm, I'm afraid to go back and watch it. But yeah, yeah. I, I loved it as a kid. So I, I guess that's, that's kind of sequel-ish <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> but... What about you, Chris? What's your, uh, what are we on now? Number two. Yeah, what's your number two? Uh, my number two is Donnie Darko. Uh, Donnie Darko film made by Richard Kelly. It was his debut film. Uh, he would later go on to make such classics as Southland Tales and The Box. <laughs> uh, for the record, I like The Box. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're one of about a dozen. Yes, uh, we we have meetings every week. <laughs> Denny's down on Fifth Street. Yes, uh, I'll think about it. Um, but Donnie Darko was his first film. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal as the titular character of Donnie Darko, and the whole sort of basic plot revolves around him being sort of this loner at school in, in his high school, not necessarily a popular kid, uh, a little bit mentally disturbed in a sense. Um, and he goes, sees the psychotherapist every week and, and things of that nature, uh, to help work through some of his problems. But, uh, one day an airplane engine comes crashing through the roof of their house, right into Donnie's, uh, bedroom. And it just so happened he was not in the bed at the time, even though it was the middle of the night. And that weird sort of coincidence turns into something else entirely involving, you know, weird time portals and, uh, you know, falling for a girl and a, a guy in a, a rabbit suit. Uh, if you've not seen Donnie Darko, it's a cult classic. And uh, I'm, I personally have avoided and will continue to avoid watching the director's cut of the film, which I oh. hear explains a lot more about what happens ruins the film yeah i prefer to let the mystery stay as a mystery and uh that's part of the reason why i think it's at my number two i used to love this movie um quite a bit more than i do now uh chris i'm sure you you knew this uh we used to have a poster of this in my college dorm um with the director's cut, I've I've lost some uh, of my fervor for it. I, I still think the original is is a great movie, but the director's cut just shows that sometimes a director gets lucky, um, and I think he's learned a lot. I mean, I, I'm not kidding when I said that I really enjoy the box. It's a pretty perverse um, little film that just goes off the rails early and often and i love it for it but um 
not very many people do, as you said, but Donnie Darko is definitely one that, uh, it's smart and, and clever and improved immensely by the fact that, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in it is really fantastic. Yes. Reggie, how about your number two? Well, just real quick for the record, if I had a sixth pick, I, I would have put Donnie Darko on my list. Um, but my second pick is actually um, the Terminator series, and Kevin pretty much said everything I wanted to say, and I agree, the first two are awesome, and it kind of, eh, kind of trails off. Even though in Terminator Salvation, I thought it was awesome that not only was Arnold in it, but he was he looked the way he did in the first movie, which I thought was really cool. So my number two pick, I guess it's kind of a cheat, but... Um, uh, the Terminator series, most notably the first two, though. <laughs> um, Chris, yeah. what's your? Uh, I'm sorry, I totally skipped uh, Kevin. <laughs> I, I do want to say, I do want to say though that Arnold was quote unquote in Terminator Salvation because he contributed nothing to that film aside from the fact that they used his image for CGI purposes. He he was in a removed scene. Um. That is ridiculous and very obvious why it uh, was removed, but it's it's not much more than a cameo. Is it Sergeant Candy? Is it? Probably. Or am I thinking of something else completely? That sounds about right. Yeah, I think you could probably do a YouTube search on Sergeant Candy. It's it's actually pretty funny. It's it's hilarious, but totally out of place in the movie. Hmm. So. Kevin, uh, your number one? My number one. All right. Um, well, Chris, uh, uh, you mentioned it pretty early on, but it's I'm, I'm going in a slightly different direction here. Uh, the only reason 12 Monkeys is not on my list is because my number one is La Jetée. It's a short film by uh, Chris Marker, I believe. Um, it was made... I don't know, in the 60s, I want to say, 1960-something, and uh, early 60s. It's the inspiration for 12 Monkeys, and it is brilliant. I mean, the, the entire film, it, it's hard to even call it a film. It's sort of a, a slideshow. It's it's just a, a movie told in still images. Um, it's it's a short film, so maybe I'm I'm cheating a little bit by, by including it as a one of my top five. But in in the half hour that it runs, um, it tells a fantastic little story that's just brilliant and moving and uh, fascinating. Every everything about this is is great and. Um, you can get it right now uh, on a DVD with one of Chris Marker's other films. Um, I want to say it's The Sun. Um, something like that. Uh, I I can't remember. Um, I haven't seen that that half of it yet so I, I can't comment on how that is but La Jetée is brilliant and um, it makes a lot of sen sense that um, that uh, uh, 
Terry Gilliam would remake it into the film that he did. Cool. So, Chris, what's the, your number one? Uh, my number one sort of of going in the same pattern that that's sort of been mentioned, but mine's a little bit different and going in a little bit different direction. My number one pick is Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Uh, let me explain to you why I feel that Terminator 2 is better than Terminator 1. Uh, primarily because... Arnold is given a lot more to do, uh, and it has a better sense of humor, I think, certainly, um, and that Arnold also is a good guy in this one. Um, not that he's necessarily, you know, bad playing a bad guy, but I just think that the the Terminator character, the, the Terminator robot, if you will, uh, T-800. Yes, T-800 as as a good guy functions a little bit better and, you know, even so much so in the third Terminator Rise of the Machines, uh, but that's not nearly as good of a film. Uh, but, you know, between, you know, Schwarzenegger, you got Linda Hamilton again, uh, and then Edward Furlong, who's really threw his career down the trash, uh, but also I, I do want to give a big highlight to Robert Patrick as T-1000 because that is just a badass role. And I think he will be remembered forever as T-1000 because it feels so iconic in so many ways. And Arnold, of course, will be remembered for Terminator in the same sort of way. But this way you have two, you know, two badass actors in two badass roles in in this one film versus the the Terminator, which is a good film. It's a very good film. Uh, but I don't think quite as strong as the all the elements working in place in Terminator two. I love Terminator two. Um I think that there's a certain charm to the first one that isn't present in the second one. It's it's the first one is much grittier. Um, the second one though is, is an excellent, you know, work of blockbuster filmmaking. I think it was the most expensive film at the time. Um, broken only by Waterworld and then broken by Titanic. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I totally understand why, why you would pick this one over uh, the first one. And I do also want to give a, a special shout out to uh, to Danny Cooksey, who's in the film, also known as Budnick. On yes, yes, yes. I love that show. Oh my god, <laughs> doing some great voice work these days. Oh, I didn't know that. I know that uh, uh, Donkey Lips uh, used to get messages on MySpace and would respond to you if you uh, messaged him. Nice. Uh, so, so, Reggie, what's your number one? Um, my number one is, uh, no surprise to anybody that really knows me, but um, it would be, I guess, I guess I can't give you crap anymore, Kevin, for cheating, because not only have I done it once on this list, I'm about to do it again, um, but my number one pick would be the Back to the Future trilogy. 
uh, for all the reasons we've already talked about, all the reasons we've already listed. So I don't really have to say anything else. But yeah, I, I think I think it's amazing. It's something that's always captivated my um, attention, imagination. I mean, ever since I mean, it was one of the first movies I remember seeing. was Was the very first one. I saw the second and third one in theaters. Um, it, and it's something that's. I mean, my love for it has has grown. Uh, over the years, like, however, 25, 26 years, you know, since I saw the first one, and I, I think it's fantastic, so, um, not only is it a good time travel movie series, it's it's just a good movie series in general, and, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you're really doing yourself a disservice at this point. <laughs> you know, I, I probably would have put the Back to the Future trilogy as a whole on my list had I felt like the third one was worthy of inclusion. Uh, it was, I, though. It was good. It was, It just wasn't as good as the first two. It doesn't mean I, it wasn't good. I, I think it's a little bit of a black mark on that series. <sighs> All right. It had ZZ Top in it. <laughs> you can't hate on any movie that has ZZ Top in it. <laughs> Clearly. It's the ZZ Top rule, I believe. I'm sure uh, it would have helped, so. like, Gigli. ZZ Top was in Gigli. It would have been a, a way better movie. <laughs> it's like the Harry Dean Stanton role. Any movie with Harry Dean Stanton in it can't be all bad. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, And he was in The Avengers. I'm, I'm going to throw that out there, so... Um, but anyway, so yeah, so... Our top five films. We had a few uh, rollovers, but it's a pretty nice selection here, I think. Yeah, I, I would like to give a couple quick shout-outs. Uh, I, I was a little disappointed neither of you guys put Hot Tub Time Machine on your list. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that that was the first date I went on with Lindsay, um, and we are now getting married. So there you go, Hot Tub Time Machine. Nice. Um, I, I also... My number six pick probably would have been Midnight in Paris, but oh yeah, that's a great one. I just saw that one a few weeks ago, actually. Um, for the first time. For the first time, yeah. I I just hadn't gotten a chance to catch up with it, um, and we watched it. And Lindsay turns to me and goes, "I think this movie's about you." <laughs> um, yeah, I have a a few special mentions myself. Uh, Il Mare. It's a South Korean film from a years a few years back, uh, total melodrama like the lake weepy. House. Yeah, it was remade into the Lake House. Not as good. <laughs> uh, El Mare is a really solid little film, really really entertaining, um, as well as Source Code, um, featuring Jake Gyllenhaal, of course. Uh, yes, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is on my special mention list, as well as Twelve Monkeys, which I already explained why it's not on my top five. So yeah, definitely a lot, lot of good time travel movies out there. Uh, worthwhile seeing if if that's something any, anybody's interested in. Has there been any like really great time travel games? Like I really love Braid. I think that's like the best example of time travel in a game that I can think of. Uh, was it Prince of Persia, Sands of Time? Yeah, that would work. Um, I'm, this is way back. I used to have the Back to the Future 
two and three game. It's that that's its title. It's Back to the Future two and three. They tied yeah, together. That was horrible though. It's a terrible yeah. game. It had some interesting platforming um, ideas in it uh, that you can see in these sort of games now, where you would time travel and you would find your duplicate from when you were earlier in that level, and if you touched it, you would die. So that was kind of interesting, but overall, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible game. Um, back from when NES was doing every, uh, getting its hold hands on every uh, property it could and making it into a game, no matter how nonsensical it could be. There was one for NES that was actually based on the f- the first movie as well. Yeah, and, I think that's um, pretty terrible too. Your life meter was the picture of uh, of, of Marty with his brother and sister. And so, like, as you screwed up more and more, the the picture would fade. (laughs) And then when you die, of course, the, you know, the entire picture would fade. I I like that, actually. Nice. I'm sure, I mean, this is, you know, Nintendo uh, way back in in the day, so. I'm sure it, it probably was pretty nonsensical. Well, it, I mean, it. Every level was like Marty skating <laughs> through Hill Valley, and you had to like avoid these certain things. And then at the end of each level, like you had to kind of fight Biff in the diner. But like, I think it was more like just avoid him trying to hit you with things. It was it was pretty ridiculous. Man, I miss NES games. Like there was such a sense of magic and terribleness to so many of them. You had no idea about the ter- terribleness. I do like some of the more some of the more difficult uh, games, though, because I don't think they make games quite as challenging these days. No, you definitely don't. Anyway, so that's our show for the week. Yes, Reggie? indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll catch everybody here next week. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel, unless I forget to upload the game uh, show again. So, we'll see you guys next week. No 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 funny handsome guys